The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really nice to be here together, and as Shelley and I have been saying, always good to take a little time and sense the relative simplicity of the container that we're creating together, whether you're at home or at the retreat center, appreciating the container and taking a moment to sense the community, feeling part, even those of us at our homes, living in this, being together in the Zoom world, we have to retrain our minds to really sense that there are these 45 or so folks that we're on retreat with. And then the, the third part, you know, as the three supports that I mentioned, uh, just the container, the secluded and simple container that we, we are creating together, and the community, the friendship, and how our intentions align, like our intention to be present, how each of our intention to be present can really support each other's intention to be present. And the last thing that we have going for us is we have these teachings, these wise teachings from the Buddha, and then, of course, all the reverberations and reflections through our early Buddhist tradition on these teachings from the Buddha. And we should be grateful that we have these powerful supports here, now, wind at our back in a way, because there are other forces at play, like especially the force of habit. And we've been talking today, Shelley, during the morning instructions and also a little bit in the afternoon instructions, you know, we've been talking about these very real forces, impersonal, but very real forces of the hindrances, the tendency in the heart, it's like it's inclined, our heart is inclined to want, our heart is inclined to not want, right? We have those habits toward ill will and aversion, and the habit, the tendency toward dullness. Not so much the sleepiness that results because we haven't been sleeping well. That sleepiness, as formable as it is, there's an obvious resolution, you know, get more sleep. But the mind uses sleepiness as a way of avoiding feeling and a way of, you know, dodging the unpleasantness of life. So it goes dull. Just like we can use restlessness and busyness and other ways of spinning to avoid feeling what we're feeling and to avoid having a more intimate and responsible relationship with the present moment. So we have these five, right? The last is doubt, that spinning. Now this is the unskillful version of doubt. It's that kind of mental spinning that takes the mind, the awareness further and further away from a direct, immediate knowing that it's like this. 
or if the mind is spinning in doubt, it's going more into its thoughts about things, becoming more and more disconnected, and that disconnection fuels more of that spinning. In each of these five, wanting, not wanting, or aversion, too little energy, dullness, too much energy, restlessness, and worry, and then the spinning of doubt, right? Each of them, when operating in our heart, in our mind, has its own feedback mechanism. And so they're truly to be respected. And I'm going to talk about that tonight. But we, we want to remember that it's, we talk about the hindrances, you know, and it, it can, and in some ways they should scare us, you know, appropriately. We don't want to um, live a life where these habits, these tendencies of our mind are kind of free to act themselves out without any wisdom in the room. <laughs> because when greed is acted out, it makes it more easy for greed to act itself out more and more. And, uh, you know, the image the Buddha used is really, uh, in some ways, a terrifying image. I'll just begin with it because it sort of sobers us up. So the image the Buddha used were these encircling vines. A lot of you have heard this simile before from the time of the Buddha. But um, in the tropics, you probably, some of you have traveled and maybe seen some of these trees that can actually take up, you know, the size of two or three city blocks, so really big, you know, after many decades, of course, of growing. But they started off as just a big tropical tree, and then some bird lands on a branch and poops out a little seed of one of these parasitic vines, these encircling vines. And the tree in the tropics, the, the vine rather, can sprout right there on the branch of one of these big trees. There's enough debris, enough humidity for the vine to start growing even, you know, many feet high above the ground. And eventually as that vine grows there on the branch of a tree, it will drop roots down. And very slowly over time, the vine, and maybe many of these vines, begin to encircle that tree so that at some point there's nothing left to be seen of the original tree. The canopy, the trunk, all the branches have been completely encircled by these vines. And as the vines drop roots down from the branches, you know, it's like in that way the vine and maybe many of these vines, become one indistinguishable huge tree. But it's really the vines having encircled the original trees that were there. And that's the image the Buddha chose for the hindrances, these tendencies of our mind that have these organic feedback systems, right? When I'm aversive, when I'm relating with aversion, it's easier for aversion to get triggered. And on and on it goes. 
So what's a human being to do in this world where these tendencies have already, to some degree, you know, have already taken root, have already gotten established in our mind streams? These tendencies to use wanting to feel enlivened, to use aversion to feel enlivened as a self, to identify with dullness and sleepiness, to identify with restlessness and worry, and to get caught up and identify with doubt. What's a human being to do? And one of the things I love about early Buddhism is that, uh, you know, especially, you know, early Buddhism is very pragmatic, much more psychological and much less metaphysical than the later Buddhist traditions. It's really down to earth. It's a very earthy path. And what I like is the primary, not so much in Buddhist culture, you know, in the countries like uh, Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and Cambodia and Laos. <clears throat> you know, in those countries, the Buddha becomes the sort of primary devotional object, the idea of this person. And, and even in sort of the more folk, religious contexts in uh, Southeast Asia, you know, the Buddha is almost seen like a divinity, not so different than some of the Western faith traditions. But within the teachings, you know, if we're really aligning with the tradition, what the Buddha said, the devotional object for us is reality. And I always like that. It's such a trustworthy, not easily depicted by artists, like how are we going to create a religious icon around reality? So, you know, in the early tradition, it was the Dharma wheel, this that eight-spoked wheel, sort of represented Dhamma the way it is, reality, the underlying nature of the mind, of experience. And uh, if you go to some of the monasteries, the monks and nuns, they chant homage to the Dhamma, homage to the way it is. I mean, it's, I'm not kidding, it's really the devotional object. You really bow down to reality because it's a teacher. And, uh, we bow down as Shelley spoke on the first night, you know, when Shelley was going through the three refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. You know, we take refuge in being able to wake up, to connect with, to sustain with, to open to Dhamma the way it is. And so when they chant, they, it goes, now let us chant in praise of the Dhamma. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards to be experienced individually, available by the wise to the wise. I chant my praise to this teaching. I bow my head to this truth. So I'd, I'd encourage you just to play with this. I mean totally in a light-hearted way, in a exploratory way, when no one else is looking, probably, in your room, whatever. And just sense 
the reality of the present moment, sense what a uncompromising teacher it is, <laughs> you know, it's always there, you know. And the thing about reality, the present moment is, as soon as I'm relating unskillfully in the present moment, the teacher, you know, changes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the moment becomes harder to bear. And whenever the heart is relating skillfully, the moment is easier to bear. And that's the kind of teacher to be respected. The feedback is immediate. We don't have to wait to the end of the semester to find out how we've been doing. It's right here, right now. This is what Ajahn Sumero says about um, this teacher, the Dhamma. He writes in his book, The Mind and the Way. It's a wonderful book by Ajahn Sumero, one of our Western Buddhist monks in this early Buddhist tradition or Theravada Buddhism. <clears throat> he writes, meditation is a way of op <coughs> opening to Dhamma. <coughs> You're opening to the truth. So when we chant about Dhamma, we say that it is apparent here and now. Timeless, encouraging investigation, leading to liberation, to be experienced for oneself, realizable by the wise. These are words that point to the here and now. When we're opening to truth, we're not looking for anything in particular, like focusing on one object and saying, is this the truth? Opening to truth is opening the mind, rather than focusing on one thing. So when we take refuge in Buddha and Dhamma, that reminds us to be in the state of alert attention. We're not trying to concentrate on this or get rid of that. We're not getting caught in the habits of indulgence and suppression. When we do open, when we learn how to open ourselves here and now, then we begin to experience peacefulness because we're not looking for any particular thing to attach to. We're not running about anymore. We're stopping the frantic running. So opening to Dhamma is the way to peacefulness, which we have to realize for ourselves. We have to realize the truth for ourselves. It's not a matter of waiting around for somebody else to realize the truth for us or to tell us what it is. Now, a little bit later he writes, taking refuge is not looking for something somewhere, but opening to the way it is here and now. Taking refuge is looking at how things really are, rather than the way we might romantically conceive them to be. So we, it might break our hearts a little, you know, because in a way we sort of want to be saved and maybe we're wise enough to realize that no one's going to be able to save us. But we might, you know, kind of find another way, like I'll go on a Buddhist retreat and that will save me or I'll start sitting every morning and that will save me. So we're always, in a way, creating some idea of a savior. And we might want to replace it with, not so much that we give up on liberation or give up on freedom, 
But it's, as I mentioned in the short guided sit just a few minutes ago, it's really that freedom with being a half-baked meditator, freedom with being an imperfect human being, freedom with a mind that's like this, a heart that's like this, a body that's like this, a world that's like this. Now that's radical. But it's, it's actually more trustworthy because how many times have we been burnt by any kind of idealism about our lives, about freedom? And this is a good place to start when we're talking about the hindrances. Because the, uh, obviously the, the way that we might habitually want to approach them is the sort of slash and burn, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to get the most intense weapons I can find and I am going to literally destroy, you know, all the hindrances. And there's this kind of language and even in Theravada Buddhism. So it's easy to misunderstand what we're doing with the hindrances we are liberating ourselves from the causes of suffering, right? I mean, clearly I'm interested in liberating this heart from whatever causes suffering. But the, you know, the important question is, how does that happen? How does the liberating, you know, what is the cause for that liberation of the heart? Is it hating the hindrances or fearing the hindrances? And in a funny way, we know this because we only have to get rid of things that are me and mine. You know, like the terrible stuff. I only have to, like, we don't feel affected when somebody down the block is acting out and being a real jerk. It's like, I hope the best for them. I hope they find their way. I hope they become a nicer human being. But if they don't, that's really their business, right? So we don't generally think that uh, I have to get everything in order in order to be free. But it, we don't feel that way in terms of our own mind. It's like, yeah, but here, you know, this is my territory. So if I'm going to be free, well, I certainly can't have a mind like this. And I can't, I've got to stop moving when I'm meditating. Because how could somebody be free and fidget? You know, that doesn't seem right. And then sometimes I have those despicable thoughts, and that's got to stop. And on and on. Ajahn Amaro, some of you might know one of our, another, he's a, was a, originally a student of Ajahn Sumedho's, and then for many years a colleague of Ajahn Sumedho's, and he took over as the abbot of Amaravati in England when Ajahn Sumedho retired, maybe almost 10 years ago now, I think that happened. And uh, But I, I got to practice with Ajahn Amaro back in the 90s, and he had this very simple way of giving meditation instructions. He would say something like, see if you can let the body find its natural ease. And then see if you can find the mind's natural ease and just rest there in the body and the mind's natural ease as best you can. And then just stay alert and notice whatever it is that arises 
to disturb the natural ease. So just in the same way that Dhamma is our teacher, the way it is, that means that the hindrances are our teacher. And so we, you know, we do our best to settle, to be calm, to feel safe with experience as it is. And that contrast from the relative settledness, the relative calm, the relative clarity, then we notice what arises in our experience that gets the mind, body entangled, the, the, the little and the not so little dramas. I'm assuming you noticed a few today, right? How many little and big dramas, obsessions, problems that the mind got entangled with? And it's just so interesting um, to make that a place of study. It's not about controlling. That's, that's too gross of a way of understanding the practice, like I'm here to stop the entanglement from happening. Totally, it's okay to think that way, but it's not actually nuanced enough. A better way to understand, we're really here to understand, so when our mind, when our heart and body does get entangled, our job is to understand that natural, lawful process of entanglement. And when the mind and heart becomes disentangled and the hindrance, the entangling, encircling vine of wanting or not wanting, or being identified with sleepiness, being identified with the restlessness, being identified with the sense of doubt and confusion. When that is abandoned, when that fades, when that goes out as a encircling, entangling force in the mind, we notice that. So we're really learning the natural, the lawfulness of these encircling, entangling tendencies, what feeds them and what starves them. And we practice seeing them as impersonal. I mean, in a way, as a practitioner, we're responsible for becoming wiser, getting to know them, but they're not personal. But we are interested in them, right? We are interested in observing them. Because, as I mentioned, you know, at the very beginning, the reason I mentioned that simile of the encircling vines, it's really appropriate to be af afraid. It's like we know seeds that are watered, cultivated, can turn into a whole forest. Right? And so if the wrong seeds are cultivated and continuously planted, well, we're going to have a particular kind of ecosystem. It really matters what seeds are being planted and cultivated. And that's the way that we become a good naturalist, a good gardener, and take responsibility for this ecosystem of our body, heart, mind, and world, because of course our world is just the collective 
you know, expression of all of our minds, hearts together. If we really want to be a wise naturalist, we study cause and effect. And um, one of my teachers, Sadhu Tejaniya, that's, that's how he defines wisdom. I really love this. He says, wisdom is that part of the mind that sees causes, that is interested and recognizes cause and effect. So that's what we're comprehending or studying or opening to. So when we notice that there's wanting, it's not really right to say I'm trying to get rid of the wanting mind. It's more appropriate to feel and understand that I'm really wanting to understand there is wanting, it's like this, and just like a natural a naturalist would be just this um, observer trying to stay out, like not having an agenda. Like if you were studying birds and you know you're studying their feeding habits or their mating habits or their nesting habits, you don't have a spin. You're not trying, like you, whatever your hypothesis might be, you're not trying to make it manifest, you just want to see how they build their nest or how they feed themselves or how they mate or, you know, how they protect themselves or any of the other behaviors. And so that's a really good uh, metaphor for how we observe the hindrances. Like, how does this get fed? How does this grow? How does this get more and more established in the mind? What is the feedback mechanism here? How is the mind feeding this? <laughs> the Buddha uses a very simple metaphor. He says, you know, if you have a blazing bonfire and you periodically bring cartloads of dried timber, branches, dried dung, and throw it into the blazing bonfire, what's going to happen? You know, it will continue burning for a long, long, long time. And then he goes, you know, if you were to instead, with that blazing bonfire, not dump cartloads of timber, branches, and dried dung, what would happen? It would go, eventually, it would go out through lack of fuel. And this is the thing, because we're not, it's not about... Um, you know, in this observation, what gets really clear because of the comprehension is like, how is wanting being fed? When the mind pays attention to what, does that wanting, the desiring increase? The blaze, that's the, the Buddha uses for, for greed, for the wanting mind. He uses the image of fire. You know, the burning and it does sort of feel burning, like when you really want lunch or you really want to go to bed or you really want your honey, your sweetheart, wherever they might be, or you really just want to be home in your own space or whatever it is the mind really wants. It does feel like we're on fire, like we're burning and the fire, the burning of the fire is only going to go out when I get what I want. Right? 
And for aversion, for not wanting, he uses the image of grip, the grip of hate, the grip of aversion, the grip of fear. And for delusion, he uses the image of a net, the entangling, entanglement of delusion, distraction, denial, doubt. And even in a way, restlessness and sleepiness are aspects of delusion. Because we're taking the restlessness and the sleepiness personally, right? And that's, it's like a net. When I have that heaviness of dullness, that I identify it as like, I'm heavy, I'm sleepy, my mind's like glue, then it is like being entangled in a net, caught up. And it's, uh, it's very empowering, even though it's messy, a lot of this kind of work of being aware of the hindrances, it's not necessarily or very often pleasant, right? But it's liberating, because what the mind sees is the lawfulness of these entangling habits. Like I've been saying, you know, when I pay attention to the pleasantness of the thing I want, like if you're, <clears throat> this happens especially those of you <clears throat> on retreat, and you're not in your home space, obviously, you're not eating the food you maybe would want to eat because you're eating what's served. And so many other things when we, you know, choose to leave and go to a place to practice. So then if you're there craving something, right? When I bring to mind my particular bed at home or my particular pet at home or whatever it is that your mind right now is finding pleasing, if I keep paying attention to that, it's like throwing cartloads of fuel onto the bonfire. So what do we need to pay attention to that will allow the fire of greed to go out? And it's not for the Buddha or for me or anybody to tell us. We can comprehend this directly, just through observing how we feed greed, how we starve it. What do we pay attention to that feeds aversion? Like if something happened today that really irritated us, and then we notice that the mind keeps going back. But when the mind is spinning with that aversion, what object, what image, what idea does the mind keep regurgitating and looking at that then triggers that movement of aversion and then the movement of aversion creates the tendency to want to regurgitate that mental image or that idea and then there's that another wave of the aversion, the emotion of aversion, which triggers the wanting to look at that particular image or regurgitate that particular thought or idea and that's the feedback mechanism. That's how the fire of aversion keeps blazing, burning, and the grip of aversion gets tighter and tighter. You know, if we're afraid of death, 
or afraid of financial ruin, or afraid that somebody doesn't love us, or afraid of becoming heavy, you know, gaining weight, or getting too skinny, or whatever it is that we're afraid of, you know, it's like, it's the mind can get in this vortex where it brings to mind exactly that image, that thought, that evokes that fear or that aversion, and on and on. And when there's that balanced, compassionate presence, just seeing this activity in the heart and mind, right? It just sees, oh honey, this is how this works. But that's that wise comprehension. It's really wisdom comprehending cause and effect. This is how that fire keeps burning. This is how that drama keeps spinning. This is how that grip keeps getting tighter and tighter. And then even if we don't have a clue, just that wise question, what, what else can this heart attend to? in this moment that won't feed this fire, won't increase this grip. What can I pay attention to? What can I do with attention? What is here and now in the present moment that I can pay attention to? So like with aversion, you know, when we, when the heart softens and we begin to realize that everybody's doing the best they can, I'm doing the best I can, it's not easy being a human being, of course I want to keep dwelling on aversion, but I know it just breaks my heart, hurts more and more. You know, that, that sort of understanding, that kindness, starts to break the cycle, doesn't it? Or we just start to notice things that are not causing aversion. We start to notice what's simple, what's beautiful, what's pleasant. There's something that arose later uh, in the commentaries in the centuries after the time of the Buddha. And they just talked about different personalities and people who have a lot of aversion. It said that you should have a really nice retreat center, you know, so that there's nothing there that triggers aversion. Because if you've got a mindset that's already looking for things to not like, and you're in a cold meditation center with ugly walls and ratty carpeting and <laughs> and obnoxious sounds and this and that, well then it's just going to be much harder to practice. So we really, to be skillful, we should have two retreat centers, one for the aversive types, which would be just glorious and very pleasant, but for the greedy types, a nice retreat center could be triggering for you, right? Oh, this is so nice. And maybe it can make it even nice. So we'll give you a nice, not so nice <laughs> retreat center, something like that. But we take care of it by just learning what to pay attention to. And we might have to get burnt 10,000 times where over and over the mind keeps paying attention to that, what feed, whatever it is that feeds that hindrance of wanting or the hindrance of not wanting or feeds the dullness. Like when we're sleepy and my mind obsessively 
looks at that heaviness in my eyes or that sweet gooey inner quality that we sometimes feel when we're sleepy, like just wanting to sort of disappear into oblivion of sleep. When I look at that over and over again, well, of course the sleepiness is going to become overwhelming. But as I think Shelley mentioned in response to somebody's question, if we can notice what's energizing or make effort in a way that's energizing, then that's paying attention to that is a uh, counteracts that vortex of dullness and sleepiness. Same thing we could, you know, we can, we'll have some intuition if we just ask the right question, like around restlessness. When I pay attention to what, does restlessness increase? Well, I can tell you for me, when I pay attention to all the things I think I should be doing, all the things I think I should have done weeks ago, my anxiety and worry and restlessness increase, right? When I pay attention to how everything is happening on its own, when I pay attention to the natural environment, restlessness isn't fed, it quiets down. Because one of the things, like when we're out in a more natural environment, you know, there's sort of the absence of, we never feel when we're in the woods or on the beach or wherever it might be, that it, you know, some, there's something about a natural environment that concludes, the mind concludes, like, it's already done. It's already complete. It's already as it should be, right? Generally, you know, when we're in the woods, we're not like, thinking about a renovation project for the woods. You know, that log shouldn't be there and we need to move these plants there and those plants over here. There's something in those more not human-made environments that feel like they're as they should be. And then, so if we pay attention to that, then restlessness gets quieter. We're not feeding it. Same with doubt. And again, you know, it's not like we need a checklist. Okay, when there's aversion, I look at this, I don't look at that. It's more this natural trial and error where we're just finding our way directly, immediately. And so the, the way forward, like tomorrow and tonight, and if you notice one of the hindrances, then just in this compassionate way, like, well, this aversion or this greed or this dullness or this restlessness or this doubting, it's a natural phenomena. It arises when the supporting causes are there. It ceases when those supporting causes aren't there. And then in terms of, it's like we're not bad because aversion has arisen in our heart because the the cause for it to show up, that's due to past causes. The only thing we can do now is either feed it or not feed it. So it doesn't, we don't need to take it personally that, like for me, I tend to be more of an aversive type. I don't need to take it personally because whatever type we are, that is based on past, you know, conditions or causes. 
The only question is, with curiosity and kindness, like, how can I recognize what's alive? And how can I stop from feeding what isn't helpful? How can I learn to starve it? How can I feed what is useful and not what is unuseful? And this was sort of highlighted in a little dialogue, one of the few dialogues from the um, time of the Buddha that involves sort of stars, a layperson. But this uh, person who had been a student of the Buddha, a layman who had been a student of the Buddha for a while, um, liked to go to where the nuns and monks were discussing practice after their meal. They'd have their main meal about 10.30 in the morning because uh, nuns and monks can't eat after noon, after midday. So, and then they'd have, because they had gathered to have their meal together before they go off to their campsite to practice on their own in the afternoon and evenings, um, this is the time they'd sort of discuss their practice together. And he came upon some monks that were discussing, like, why is it that, you know, we're always getting entangled in these unwholesome states of mind? And they, there were sort of two groups. One was arguing, it's because the heart, the mind is so sensitive. If we weren't sensitive, then there wouldn't be a problem. And then this other group of monks were sort of debating the other, another point of view. They said, no, it's not that we're sensitive, it's the particular experiences that are arising that we're sensitive to. It's the experience that's the problem, not that we're sensitive. If I had different experiences, different circumstances, then there wouldn't be any suffering. So they were going at it, and they noticed that Chitta was there listening, and they had respected him because they knew he had been a long-time student of the Buddha. And so, in this unusual situation, they asked, actually asked the layperson to weigh in. What do you think, Chitta? So Chitta says, I'll just read here, Venerable Sirs, it's, it is just as if a black ox and a white ox were joined with a single collar or yoke. If someone were to say, the black ox is a fetter of the white one, or the white one is a fetter of the black ox. Speaking this this way, would they be speaking rightly? And the monks responded, no, no, that's not right. It's because of the yoke that the two ox, oxen are yoked, tied together. No one is at fault. They're tied together. And Chitta goes, yeah, exactly so. In just the same way, it's not because you're sensitive and it's not because of the experiences that you're sensitive to, that you suffer. Something arises in conjunction with the sensitivity and the experiences that you're sensitive to. And what arises in conjunction is, you know, are these tendencies, these habits, in a sense, embedded in the heart and mind because of past causes to relate with ignorance that leads onward, you know, basically to greed and aversion that what Gil Fransel, some of you know Gil Fransel, a wonderful teacher from the West Coast, uh, I read somewhere that he calls greed and aversion the caffeine of the soul. <laughs> I like that. Because so much of our day, even when we're on retreat, is animated by greed and aversion. So this simile that 
that Chitta is pointing to is we really want to get interested in the yoke. Now I'll just give another way of thinking about this before we end at eight, because a lot of times Shelley and I and other teachers use the image of a mirror for this being present, mindful presence, mindful awareness, like a simple, effortless mirror that simply knows it's like this now. This is being felt, feels like this, looks like this. And this is, you know, we, we use that image of a mirror as a way of understanding how we might relate to the present moment, just in that simple, reflective, oh, it's like this. But what if the mirror is distorted or gets colored in different ways? And sometimes the way the mirror is reflecting back is making the mind really want or making the mind really aversive, or making the mind sleepy, right? It's the coloring or the distortion of the mirror that is skewing the perception. And that's the yoke. It isn't the experience that's be re being reflected in the mirror, it's the distortion itself. So that's why we often think about um, the root of suffering being in the way we're relating. And our whole path, our whole practice, it's really about this way of relating, getting familiar with how's the heart relating right now. So we can ask, like, is there greed operating in the heart? Not as a judgmental way, we're not, it doesn't work to get averse to greed or get controlling. We just want to know, how's the mind relating? How's the mind knowing? Is there fear? Is there dullness? Is there restlessness? Is there doubt? And then if the answer seems to be, yeah, there might be, well, can I be with this? Can I be interested in this? What's the underlying feeling? Because when we're with the hindrance in that balanced, non-judging, non-fearful way, only then will we know whether we're feeding it or starving it. It's subtle. There's, I mean, the basic cause for suffering is we don't see this pattern. We all want to be done with suffering, even the most deluded person in the world, you know, which each of us are in certain moments, right? We all want to be free from suffering. But in wanting and desiring and trying to be free from suffering, we do exactly what perpetuates suffering. So that should really wisen us up. I don't know how to take care of myself. So I'm going to start with humility. I'm going to really, instead of going directly to fixing the problem, I realize with humility, I don't understand the problem well enough. I don't understand how I'm feeding greed, hatred, and delusion, or the five hindrances. I don't understand how I'm feeding the wanting mind. I don't understand how I'm feeding the aversive mind, the fearful and aversive mind. I don't understand how I'm feeding dullness, or restlessness, or doubt. So I'm going to, on purpose, befriend 
the five hindrances or any of the unskillful qualities. I'm going to relate to them with friendliness and kindness and patience and forgiveness and balance. And I'm going to see directly in my own heart and mind what feeds, what starves, what's onward leading to liberation and what's onward leading to more and more stress and suffering. And this is how we become independent. You know, we observe directly how they're being fed. So this isn't easy work. It isn't even often pleasant work, but it's definitely liberating work. I'll just end with uh, the Buddha kind of giving us a bit of transmission of his own confidence. He said once, <clears throat> abandon what is unskillful practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible, I say, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. And then he goes on, he says, cultivate what is skillful practitioners. It is possible to cultivate what is skillful. If it weren't, I wouldn't say to you, cultivate what is skillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, cultivate what is skillful. If this cultivation were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you to cultivate what is skillful. But because this cultivation of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, cultivate what is skillful. So let's just take a moment, let go of the words, being with our heart, This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.